Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to Your Cases on Hold. This is episode 14. For those of you who have been listening from the beginning, you know by now that I'm uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods, Sik Gorgiamas, Alice Subjectatus Nunc, and my co-host... Dr. Antonia Chen, who does not speak Latin. <laughs> I'm a Deputy Editor for me. And now we have Emerald, a please. special guest star... With us here today, inaugural guest co-host, please introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, it's Michelle Caird. I am the chair of orthopedic surgery at University of Michigan, and I am a pediatric orthopedist and so excited to be here with both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. This is so wonderful. Everyone is always saying that your case is on hold is run out of the Ivy League and just because Antonia is a member of Skull and Bones does not mean that this is run out of the Ivy League. This is this is Big Ten country right here. Michigan, yep. Rutgers, Michigan. This is where it's at. Great. Better sports Thank by you. far. <laughs> Go blue. Go blue. Absolutely. Absolutely. So red, red. I'm wearing red today, even too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're you're there for Scarlet Knights. There you go. A few rejoinders, as always, and now to add Michelle here as well, the opinions you will hear and the issues that are raised and the takes that are hot are all our own and not reflective of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, the Board of Trustees, or the other editors and deputy editors. This episode is brought to you by Clinical Connector for JBJS. We are looking for recruiting new and interested individuals who would like to write and participate in this exciting program. For those who are interested, you do have to be in attending with five years experience and interested in education. Please contact customer support at jbgs.org to get involved. And without any additional comments, we will now proceed into the headlines. I will go first with my headline. This is quality reporting windows may not capture the effects of surgical site infections after orthopedic surgery. This is by Shapiro and colleagues. It is 30 days free. So as always, no excuses. Everyone should be in on this one, getting your own opinions, deciding on whether or not you're putting this on hold or if it's green lighted to go to the OR. Uh, There's also an infographic for those visual learners who are so inclined. This was a study conducted uh, in the Veteran Affairs Healthcare System. They looked at orthopedic surgical interventions writ large, querying by CPT code, and they came up with a total of close to 97,000 procedures, so a very large number of procedures. However, the dates of inclusion are from 2007 to 2014, so hit that button because what happened to the last eight years of surgeries (laughs) or the last six years of surgeries even. 
They are looking at uh, patients who sustain surgical site infections and then characterizing costs for these individuals. Perhaps not surprisingly, uh, the average cost among patients with a SSI was about 150,000 compared to just 42,000 for those who did not have such a complication. Once they adjusted for various confounders, the cost for patients with an SSI were about 64% greater at two years. Now, this is very interesting. The advantage of working with a VA system is that you have longitudinal follow-up and can assess longer-term ramifications across a two-year window that they're looking at that you can't really do if you're just working through monocentric data or even healthcare system data. If a patient gets care with you, then is frustrated and goes on to somewhere else, you're not going to be able to see what what services they required or what long-term ramifications may have occurred. At the same time, I think they do unfortunately have some self-inflicted missteps here. So they're looking at infections that occur at 30, 90, 180, 365, and 720 days. Some of those are going to be infections that are not necessarily surgical site infections in the way we understand them. In addition, it is a VA population. The average age of the population was 64 so this is 64 in uh, averaging across the seven years, t- 2007 to 2014. So this is probably a veterans population that was largely comprised of uh, Korean War, some World War II, and, and certainly Vietnam uh, veterans. How that applies to the younger VA population that we have now, seeing individuals who are servicing uh, in um, the uh, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan and in Iraq, I think that that part is also open to question. The translational capacity for the VA population to the civilian sector, I also think is open to question. And they have to some respects, I think they could have more granularity than they included, but there is limited clinical granularity. About three quarters of all these cases were joints cases, 15% were spine cases, and then 12% were trauma cases. Uh, well, what, what is trauma? These are not usually level one trauma centers, they're VA, so it's probably like hip fractures, I guess, or just the radius fractures or something like that. But that's, that's you know, a, a pretty broad brush stroke in that particular domain. Where are the hand cases? Where are the arthroscopic cases? Granted, they have low infection rates, but I mean, they do have them. Like you can get an infection after an ACL, just ask Tom Brady. Michigan and New England, achievement unlocked. Uh, At the end of the day here, though, um, the main thing that I'm going to put on hold is their final conclusion, which I will read for you. And it says, preoperative care pathways and optimization and policies, including reimbursement models and risk adjustment, should be made to reduce surgical site infections and account for long-term effects. That probably could be said for any study of the next several that we cover, those are platitudes that are not specific to the intent of of the research. So um, some of the methods, while potentially good, some missteps, the conclusions, I think it kind of falls short of of really what what could have been more uh, informative or impactful. I have nothing to add to that. I completely agree. (laughs) That was as in-depth as it goes. Shell, anything from you that you'd like to add? 
Andrew likes to knock these out of the park. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Um, I do think that it's really nice that this is running with um, what we'll talk about a little later, the idea of surgical site infection and wrapping that all around in this, this episode. So I've got a lot more to say about that, but um, yeah, thanks. And it will be important clinically for us, for our hospitals to be thinking about some of these things. I just don't know if this gets us all the way there. So thanks, Andrew. Right. And I'm curious if this would be interesting in a different population of patients, right? This is nice that it's contained, but it would be kind of interesting to see this in a different hospital system. So the key is follow-up easier, probably in another country where they have one healthcare system and they can follow them without jumping from different hospitals, um, but different here because at least the VA is somewhat captured. So going on the idea of database-like studies, I'm going to switch to low rates of reporting race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status in studies published in top orthopedic journals by Chernikov and all, and there's a commentary on it. So again, don't have to believe what I have to say. Go read the commentary and get some more information. So basically the basic, basic background of this study was to basically say, in the year of 2019, we took two of the top orthopedic journals, JBJS and CORE. And we said that looking at them, we say, okay, what did they report with regards to specific areas? And the specific areas they looked at were race, ethnicity, which is defined as Hispanic slash Latino versus non-Hispanic slash Latino, and then three socioeconomic status variables, income, education level, and healthcare insurance. And they basically looked at all different studies within this time frame. Now, they, ex- they, well, they included, uh, if they had one author who was affiliated with the U.S. institution, they were included, but there was no demographic data. Understandably, they were excluded. So that's what the baseline was. In this criteria, actually, only 156 articles met the inclusion criteria, and they found that 36% had race, only 15% report ethnicity, and income and education and health insurance range between 8% to 15%. So all very low numbers. What's interesting too, is they also saw that if looking at the different variables, education was what was reported more often in the prospective studies. You know, what it comes down to is looking more in depth of it, looking at the results here, uh, the race and ethnicity were more likely to report in studies utilizing insurance or national databases. So interestingly enough, compared to institutional databases, the institutional data had the worst amount of reporting. State databases were a little bit better with reporting these. So the methodology behind this type of study is pretty straightforward, right? You're just saying, did they report it? Yes, no, and kind of do all the conducting of evaluation there. The real question we need to ask ourselves is what do we need to do with this information going forward, right? So what the authors say, which it does make sense, is a lot of our studies are in a narrow patient cohort. Does that apply to other people? Well, if you you know what the population or the study population in depth, then you can better apply it to the people that you're looking at. Now, granted, we should probably study a larger variety of people. So I think more importantly, another take-home message is to make sure that we do collect this data on people. You know, we don't do a good job of it in our own um, institution, actually. And um, we just found that out really over the last few years that we've just done a really bad job of collecting this. There's a field to fill out and populate within Epic, which happens to be our electronic medical record system, uh, but we just don't encompass it when it comes to um, taking care of our patients. So we should be better from an institutional database standpoint for all of us, state database, insurance database, national databases as well too, and really capture this information accurately. You know, a lot of those things is unknown, unknown, unknown in all of our fields of our study when we're looking at them or they're inaccurately covered, right? So, you know, we have to account for people who are mixed race. We have to account for people who have all different backgrounds, right? And we don't necessarily do that. We kind of pigeonhole everyone to a certain peg hole and they have to fit into that. 
So it's one of those things where I think it's important to look at and offer different variety of things. For example, I'm Taiwanese, and that's normally not a checkbox that you see on there when it comes to race. So just a call for people who are doing research, be sure to include all different ethnicities as possible. And then for people who are running hospital systems or databases and things like that, be sure to capture that. Thoughts or comments? Michelle, I'll give you the first uh, take if you'd like. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I I think that um, that an article like this is really important at this juncture, um, that we're starting to look at this more carefully. And just as you said, Antonia, the take-home messages are about planning studies into the future, looking at our healthcare databases and, and really making change so that we have the power to examine our data well and then tailor treatment in a more personalized and appropriate way. So um, so I think that uh, it's great that this article is, uh, that this work is being done. And <laughs> I, like you, could check a couple boxes. I have Caucasian, I have white heritage and I have um, Japanese heritage and I'd love to be able to check a couple boxes. So I think that that could really be very powerful as we're moving into the next decade of the research that we do. Yeah, I think I think that's well said uh, as we look to dismantle a lot of the challenges that confront various minority populations in different sectors of the country and different aspects of the healthcare system. I think we just have to be cognizant and engaged and invested in making the research as granular as possible, understanding the the different backgrounds that people have and the different levels of intersectionality that may occur across groups that are, you know, again, characterized very broadly. And in many respects, as you brought up, for example, the the category of Asian that covers a tremendous amount of different people from different backgrounds, different experiences, both uh, in life and different challenges that confront them. That can be individuals from India, individuals from Pakistan, individuals from Kazakhstan, individuals from Japan, Taiwan, all characterized in this one group that is by no means in any way even remotely homogenous. In addition, a little bit closer home for myself, um, the Hispanic population also is characterized as one sort of monolithic entity and it in, by no by no means is a is a monolithic group mis antepasados estaban la isla de puerto rico desde el siglo XVI. and that of course comes as a surprise to no one <laughs> but but at the same time there are you know many whose experience as a hispanic american or a puerto rican american or a cuban american or a mexican american maybe dramatically different. And we just need to be sensitive to that. We need to be thoughtful about that. And we need to be working on that as we try to create more personalized research that can be used to to help these people and all people get better from their orthopedic conditions. And we're going to move then to your headline, Michelle, which will be the axillary nerve danger zone in percutaneous fixation in the pediatric shoulder, the one mountain, three valleys principle by Stavanoha and colleagues. Great. Thanks. So, um, so this, this, uh, article sits nicely in peds and um, and it's a fairly simple study, uh, but I think we can take some good things from it. So this is a study that was an MRI based anatomic study 
from a single institution. And what they said was, we know the course and the branching of the axillary nerve in adults, which is commonly quoted as five to seven centimeters distal to the tip of the acromion. And that's important, especially in percutaneous fixation of proximal humerus fractures or other operations about the shoulder. Adolescent patients also may undergo um, specifically percutaneous pinning for, say, proximal humeral physeal fractures or other um, proximal humeral fractures. And a similar understanding of the course of the axillary nerve would be important in these still growing patients. So it might be different from what we've what we commonly accept in adults. So the authors looked at 100 MRIs of patients in the age range that was most likely to require pinning, 10 to 17 years old. And um, these were obtained for reasons other than fractures, um, but they didn't have any sort of uh, uh, tumors or other anomalies in the proximal humerus. Three quarters of the patients were boys. Uh, so there, that was a slight difference. Um, the MRIs were obtained with the shoulder in neutral rotation and neutral abduction. And they looked at most of the information they gathered was from the coronal T1 weighted images. And they were used and they compared the course of the axillary nerve and its branches to surface landmarks and radio, radiographic landmarks like the tip of the acromion, the top of the humeral head. And um, this is an important uh, point that they keep making. Um, they also looked at the lateral most point of the proximal humeral physis and the central apex of the physis. And that's sort of that mountaintop, if I'm taking us back to the, um, to the title of the article. And then they also measured the diameter of the humeral head, which comes into play a little later. So when they did this, they identified on average 3.7 branches of the axillary nerve, anywhere from a range from two to six. And they also uh, measured that from the most proximal to the most distal branch, uh, a distance of about 11.7 millimeters on average. And from the, that lateralmost point of the humeral physis, they identified a danger zone from 6.6 millimeters proximal to that spot on the lateral humeral physis um, to 33 millimeters distal to that spot. And in that danger zone, that's where all the branches would lie. And then they restated that in terms of a different measure on the x-rays. So you could measure it um, strictly by millimeters as they did, or they said you could also measure it in terms of the percent of the physeal apex height, so that mountaintop of the physis. And if you thought of it that way, the danger zone runs from 62% of an apex height proximal to that lateralmost portion of the humerus all the way to 242% apex height distal or, or the valley. And again, when they resummarized that, they said that's one apex above or one mountain above and three apices below or three valleys below that lateral humeral physis. So, um, so really, the author felt that the most critical finding was that all axillary nerve branches were in this danger zone that, they, that could be uh, identified entirely using x-ray landmarks. 
which is can be rarely helpful. But it's important to remember that in actual fractures, it, sometimes you know it might be hard to to measure. And <laughs> they throw out one other measure um, to use that if you measure the humeral head diameter, if you go one humeral head diameter distal to that um, that lateral portion, that you you'd be safe. 97% of specimens. They also warned that the measurements might be altered in situations like actual fracture displacement, which is sort of what we're talking about. If there's a lot of swelling, it might change measurements. If the arm is abducted in the measures, or say you're starting your implant way off that mid-coronal plane, which is where they were doing their measures, it might change things. So, you know, to thinking it all through. I actually thought that their recommendation about, you know, kind of staying one humeral head diameter distal to that lateral physis and staying out of the way of 97% of, you know, staying clear 97% of the time, that that, that might be the most practical way to avoid the branches of the, of the axillary nerve as you're pinning a proximal humerus fracture in a kid. But overall, I think important simple and important to help us understand this. And, and uh, I'd love to hear um, maybe Andrew's impressions of the statistical analysis, et cetera. But I, I think I can put it into, uh, into actual practical use. Yes, uh, absolutely. And thanks for, for taking this one on. It, it certainly has you know some practical clinical relevance. Initially, I wasn't clear exactly on the mountain valley um, sort of uh, dichotomy, but it seemed to me after you know reading through it, I read through it about three times that I was like, oh, I get it. They're they're giving you like the first aid for the boards, like mnemonic. There, it's not often that you see they come up with the finding, but then they're also going to give you the mnemonic to help you like apply it in practice, which you hardly ever see. It took me back to they would do all those fun things in step one for the boards and step two for the boards. We had the, you know, you always come up with like your fun, like ways of remembering things with little acronyms or mnemonics, like for the the spinal segments, um, cyanide tastes like sweet candy, cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral, coccygeal. Uh, we had one for for the, the most common urinary tract uh, infection organisms. This is going back, like I still remember this 20 plus years later, it was Pretty Princess Sailor Moon Kills Everyone, Proteus, Pseudomonas, Serratia, Klebsiella, and E. coli. And we were into anime, so, you know, Sailor Moon, it's, it, all, it all ties in. But here, they, they came up with, like, we're just going to tell you the way that you can remember it, this mountain valley, which I guess, uh, you know, does make sense. But, but at the same time, I was seeing mountain, and I was thinking, oh, this area must be, like, higher up or elevated. And, and I wasn't quite getting that part. And I think they're just talking about proximal to distal. So for some who are maybe not working in the space that, you know, the, the uh, artificial application of these language terms might be a little bit more confusing, but um, certainly the point estimates that they provide on these distances and where the safe zone is are readily actionable and um, immediately applicable to clinical practice, I think. 
I have nothing else to add again. <laughs> it's so well done. This is what we've been doing. Mic drop. Taylor Moon mic drop. That's that's where we're at. Pretty, pretty much, there's nothing more to say. After I started that. going down my 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 mnemonics, and I was like, my mnemonics were a lot more boring. <laughs> so you win the mnemonics one, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, I win. Next, we'll see if this case avoids the on hold conundrum. The Your Cases on Hold featurette is effect of supplemental perioperative oxygen on SSI among adults with lower extremity fractures at increased risk for infection, a randomized clinical trial from O'Toole and colleagues. There is a commentary. So once again, you don't have to take it for from us. You can see for yourself what others in this space are thinking. Antonia, tell me where we're at. So this is an interesting study because it's a prospective randomized trial, and we are trying to do more and more of these. So that's a good thing. Um, that said, the pi- patient population that you looked that was looked at here were patients who went underwent tibial plateau fractures, uh, pilon fractures, and calcaneal fractures, and they're looking at surgical site infections, both superficial and deep. Well, tibial plateau fractures, at least in the experience I've seen so far, really don't get that many surgical site infections. I'd say as compared to pilon fractures or calcaneal fractures. So from just a patient population perspective, my interest would probably be drawn to the pilon fractures and the calcaneous fractures immediately, but the tibial plateau fractures understandably was the highest percentage of the patient population, over 40% of them. So that's one of those areas that that makes me just pause for a second and say, maybe that's not the patient population I would target per se for this. Now, if they said it was tibial plateau fracture in patients who were diabetic or had other comorbidities, then that supplemental oxygen may actually have um, some, had some benefit. The other thing too, is because there were three different body, three different fracture patterns, I would have liked to see an analysis broken down by fracture pattern to see if they made a difference between the 80% versus the 30% of oxygen, supplemental oxygen, and then deep and superficial infections as well. So that's one area that would probably uh, make me pause for a little bit and say, at least break it down. You already have the data. Um, Let's go ahead and go into depth with it. Uh, One thing I would like to have a little discussion about, because you are a methods guy, is this modified intention to treat analysis. And that would be an interesting viewpoint that I would love for you to expound on because they modified intention to treat. So my intention to treat is you're intending to treat it. End of story. So tell me your thoughts on modified intention to treat analysis. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. And once we start diverging from the accepted methodologic practice, we always start to get into shark infested territory. And they have a lot of exculpatory definitions, we'll call them, in ways in which they don't want to sort of toe the straight and narrow in terms of the methodologic analytic approach. They want to kind of do a sort of Wendy's have it your way kind of thing, right? So we're not going to do the intent to treat exactly. We're going to mod, it'll be a modified intent to treat. And they want the interpretation to be, it's a pragmatic interpretation. So these are, are these explanations or are they excuses? Um, The choice is yours. So once you deviate from the accepted methodologic practice, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it modified intent to treat. You can call it sharks with laser beams. You can call it the the, you know, Preparation H project, the Alan Parsons project, or Star Wars. You can call it whatever you want. It What it means is you didn't follow the exact methodologic approach. And as the, the, the methodology person here, it has to be very stringent. You can say, well, it's a, pragma- a pragmatic interpretation. We had to tweak it this or that way. It just introduces 
more potential for bias, more potential for confounding. And from my end, the, you know, the, the main difference that they're identifying, which by the way, when you look at the 95% confidence intervals is not that dramatic, but the main driver they admit is reductions in superficial surgical site infections, which they say is also open to kind of a subjective call on the part of the surgeon who's making that call, which could have also been biased by the fact that they knew whether the patients were on the 80% or the 30% FiO2. So if you knew you're on the 80% and it's a little bit red and whatever, you say, oh, well, you know, it's probably okay if it's a little bit red on the 30%. Yeah, oh, I think it's probably an infection. We should probably just, you know, get some, some Clinda in on that or whatever, whatever, whatever your oral prophylaxis of choices um, in, in this setting. And so, yeah, there's a lot of room for fingers on the scale, subjective smudging, and it starts with the modified intent to treat, the pragmatic interpretations, and then the subjective determinations on the outcome of interest. Randomized controlled trials are great in terms of, you know, how they break it down, how they report it. Really good here as a primer for those who want to, you know, have a way that they can use a rubric for reporting their RCTs. Um, potentially useful in some respects, although again, the real clinical utility, especially when the main difference is in superficial infections, I, I think they are frank about it, is, is open to question. So it's not 100% on hold, but maybe the art line is out and it's like... I just wanted to add um, and, and see if it uh, sparks any thoughts from you guys. Um, they point out also that there are some other really important factors in infection that they don't, they didn't look for like perioperative antibiotics. So they don't even report on that or capture that information. And, and it's hard to know which, you know, which factor of all of these factors would be most important. Um, but perioperative antibiotics, uh, glucose monitoring and temperature monitoring um, were not things that they looked at in this study. It's understandable. This is a small group, you know, looking at one factor probably gives it the most power to, to examine one thing at a time kind of a thing. Um, but we know there are other things to be thinking about as well. Yeah. Also a great catch. And they try to, again, explain that away by saying, well, this is a pragmatic interpretation. So it's real world, but when you're doing an RCT, you're trying to have a controlled experiment. And it goes back to our early episodes where we were talking about levels of evidence in Plato's cave. I think it's such a great analogy. Is this the true light of day as we're seeing it? No. There's so many screens that they're putting up that you're definitely getting shadows here. And then you have to decide when you apply it in real clinical practice, how much of that is are you going to draw off of their information versus like your own experience? Great. That was a great discussion. Yes. Uh, and very, very spot on. Um, so now we're into the honorable mentions. Uh, these are other uh, papers that were published in this issue of JBJS, and we encourage you to uh, check them all out. We have Clinical Manifestations of Constriction Band Syndrome by Dimitri and colleagues, which is also 30 days free. Um, so look in on that. The in-space implant compared with partial repair for the treatment of full-thickness massive rotator cuff tears, a multi-center center, single-blinded randomized controlled trial by Verma. This also has a commentary. 
Then we have the modified scarf osteotomy with medial capsular interposition combined with metatarsal shortening offset osteotomy, a comparison of patients with non-inflammatory arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis of the foot by Tani and colleagues. That one gets the award for the longest title um, in this episode. And then we have the rotator cable does not stress shield the crescent area during shoulder abduction. This is by Schmidt and colleagues, and that one's permanently free. So if you're into it for the next 30 days or the next 30 years, you'll always be able to find that one at jbjs.org or in your issue of JBJS. That covers all of the articles for this issue of the journal. Uh, I encourage you all to check it out. Also to check out our back issues of your cases on hold. Be sure to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to the podcast that does help show uh, JBJS that people value what we're doing here. I mean, literally, if you guys think about it, there are tens of listeners right now who are tuned in to hear what we have to say about JBJS. And I really enjoyed, thank you so much, Michelle, for taking time out of your day to join us as our first inaugural special guest. It's like the Scooby-Doo movies where they had like the special guest person who was in real life. And I was always tuning in because I wanted it to be like Batman and Robin. There were two with Batman and Robin. And it was always like Jonathan Winters, special guest, the Three Stooges. But, Harlem uh, Globetrotters. Really, yeah, Harlem, Harlem Globetrotters. Globetrotters, exactly. We yes. were really happy to have you here. And then just at the end, we can unmask the person. And it's like, wait, it's not you. It's Mo Bondari. And he's like, I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for your meddling kids and, and your dog. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Um, it was wonderful. We can't wait. And um, we love to have you back again. Yeah, this would be uh, wonderful to keep this going. Keep the Big Ten control of JBJS and your kick. I mean, the, the editor-in-chief is a golden gopher. Uh, <laughs> there we go. How much more in control can you be? Awesome. Thank you. We had Mo Bondari as like the secret guest villain. We got Mark Swinkowski with the Golden Gophers. We've got M. Go Blue, Michigan Wolverines and Rutgers Scarlet Knights. Hopefully your case is ready to go. But I mean, let's be honest, it's still probably on hold. As we say here, real friends help you when your case is on hold. Friends just help you with your case. All a win at the end of the day. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>